Each week, we examine the stadium beat from every angle. With athletes like Fred Lynn. The Green Monster, they call it that for a reason. About 12 foot of it from the ground to about 12 foot up was concrete. And if you hit that, I mean, it would just tear your skin off. Joe Theismann. What a great idea this is to be able to talk about the hallowed structures that exist today. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. among baseball fans who score the game at your favorite ballpark. Scoring is part of the stadium experience. Today, we'll keep score on scoring with author and baseball historian Paul Dixon. And yes, it's alive and well. Then we'll step behind the plate and meet the man who makes the calls that appear on that scorecard, umpire Dave Pallone, who remembers Wrigley Field's first night game. He called it. Pete Rose, Nolan Ryan, he called some of their greatest moments. We'll talk shop as Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran has the first review of the Minnesota Vikings' new stadium. But first, on to the stadium's beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Ribbon-cutting ceremonies took place this week in Minneapolis at U.S. Bank Stadium, the new home of the Minnesota Vikings. Public tours were given at the $1.1 billion venue, which also was the target of vandalism. It appears someone was walking along the north side of the building, picked up a rock, and tossed it through the ground-level wall of glass. Surveillance video caught the act. No arrests have been made. More on U.S. Bank Stadium coming up in our Talking Shop segment. Well, the Carolina Panthers have unveiled a nearly 13-foot statue of the team's owner at the entrance of Bank of America Stadium. The sculpture of Jerry Richardson depicts the owner in a business suit, holding out a football with Panthers to his left and right. Richardson has owned the team since its inception in 1993. The Panthers also announced a number of stadium upgrades for the season, part of a public-private financing agreement, upgraded Wi-Fi, and walk-through body scanners, part of the new features. Good news for a new Golden State Warriors arena. A San Francisco Superior Court judge has ruled against a group that was looking to stop the building of a new downtown San Francisco venue. The Mission Bay Alliance had filed multiple lawsuits against the project, citing environmental and parking concerns. But Judge Garrett Wong ruled that the environmental review of the project was adequate. The ruling paves the way for the Warriors to move from their current home, Oracle Arena in Oakland, to the new San Francisco facility, which backers hope to have ready by 2019. And the life of the ballpark vendor is not always easy. Case in point, the Oakland A's ice cream vendor, who this week took a line drive off the bat of the Astros' Marwin Gonzalez right off the keister. Major League Baseball Network picked up the play-by-play of the butt shot. Look out! Incoming! <laughs> that poor guy trying to make a living and he takes one on the backside. Give him the baseball. Come on. I just want to sell ice cream. <laughs> the vendor, Winston Payne, rubbed his bum and turned around to see several fans scurrying for the foul ball. He quickly went back to his job hawking ice cream to the Oakland faithful. Bill, watch out for that foul ball. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. 
If you enjoyed baseball and came up the way I did, you probably learned how to score. That's one of the very first things I learned in enjoying the sport of baseball. It is a ritual that goes back many, many years. And our guest certainly has that in common, and he's written about it as well. Author Paul Dixon, who has written a number of books, well over 60 and headed towards 70. And he's going to get there and beyond, I am certain. He is an award winner many times over. And he is a gentleman who learned how to keep score, knows about it, and has written about it. Paul, it is wonderful to visit with you. Let's just go to that experience of keeping score. Let's wind the clock back a little bit. Do you remember the first time that you kept score in a game? You're definitely going to be surprised by my answer hmm. because I was already a writer and I had never I had never learned from my grandfather, even though he was a big baseball guy or my father, I never had learned it. And so I was out doing some journalism and I was down in spring training in Florida and I sat, it was a Boston Red Sox game and I sat with Joe Canigliaro, who was then the, the uh, color guy for the for the Red Sox. Yes. And I watched him through this exhibition game put these little squiggly lines in, in, with a number two pencil on a, on a scorecard. You know, I thought all of this reminiscent, the ability of a, an announcer or a color guy on the radio to recall plays, I thought he had it all queued up on some computer or <laughs> some fancy system, but he's doing it with these tiny little markings and little K's and reverse K's and little slashes and little numbers. And I was infatuated. I, I knew it existed. At the end of the game, he, th- he threw it away. And I said, Joe, what are you doing? I said, what is that? That's a, that's a document. That's an important document. So he showed me sort of the basics of how he did it. And he said, yeah, he said, most anybody who really covers the game, you know, but he said they still, it still gave you a feel for the game. It still brought you into the game at a different level. And he said, everybody's scorecard is slightly different because everybody sees the game differently. And many, most people have variations on the, on the basic system. But it became fascinating to me, and I started looking into the history of it. It goes back all the way to the earliest days of the game. Mm. And, of course, what they needed was a, a very quick hieroglyphic, a very quick sort of way to you know note the positions you you don't want to write down catcher or pitcher or you don't want to right. just put down a number and then you wanted to be able <laughs> to note very quickly what went on in that play baseball itself from the very beginnings in america uh the two things that were really important to most people and this is before radio this is back in the age of the telegraph mm-hmm. uh the two most important things were the box score and the and the hand-driven scorecard. The box score allowed games to be transmitted by by telegraph overnight because they were just numbers. They weren't you know elaborate things that so and so caught the ball and threw it to so and so or somebody mm-hmm. got a single. But it was just this very simple thing that could be sent to newspapers overnight. So the game itself started to become very prominent because on the next morning. Somebody living in Chicago could read about a baseball game that had been played in Florida mm-hmm. because of the box score. The hand-driven scorecard was just a way for the what they used to call the hot stove league. bunch of people sit around the, in the middle of the winter wanting to revisit the games they'd seen. They could argue their points. They could say, no, no, this guy was 
you can just see by my scorecards, this particular batter never seemed to really get a hit with people on base. And that's what Trant came forward. It was this ability to do this. One of the things where I did the research on the book, I began to realize how many people grew up and learned baseball from the score, the, the uh, scorecard. Uh, what is the process of discovery that you've had related to the book that you've written, The Joy of Keeping Score, and the process of researching it? I know how thorough you are. Uh, what process of discovery did you uh, undertake here, and what did you learn? I went to a lot of ballparks. I went to, I usually went to the cheaper the seats, the more people are keeping score. Hmm. Uh, the, the, the high-end box seats you'll find often are lawyers talking business or something. closer you got to the, the cheaper seats, the more people are keeping score. One thing I discovered, which was fascinating, even with the big jumbotrons of today, the big, huge, information-laden scoring systems with the big, you know, high-definition television, if you're keeping score, you're still sort of the king of your row in the, in the, in the, in the wherever you're sitting in the, in the seats. And somebody will say, you, if you're keeping score, somebody will say, hey, what, what did this guy do the last time at bat? I mean, it's like because it's almost like you're keeping the, the record for the game, whereas the Jumbotron is there to entertain you, if you follow me. We are now, of course, very, uh, very much immersed in the digital age. How is that influencing scorekeeping? Uh, do we still have the numbers of people who are enjoying the analog pleasure that we used to have? That's a great question, because every once in a while, I get a call from somebody. And one of them was actually from the Wall Street Journal. Somebody called me and said, we're doing an article about the death of scorekeeping. And my, and my answer is, oh, yeah, it's not dead. And I said, mm-hmm. you know, it's really easy to write these articles to say, well, this is dead because it's, you know, that we now have a digital answer. It's been a, it's impacted in the sense there's probably a little less of it. But there's still a huge number of people to do it. Kids do it. Um, older people, I've heard from many older people who have scored for many years and still will, will score. They'll go to the game as a social event and they'll sit home in their living room and score the game up for, from the radio. Well, great. Paul Dixon, author of the book, The Joy of Scorekeeping. Now, we're starting on one side of the equation, talking about scorekeeping itself. We're going to now learn a little bit about a gentleman who has a lot of influence on what Paul writes down on his scorecard, umpire Dave Pallone. That's in our next segment. Stay tuned. I don't think there are any people who have a greater love for the game than the people that officiate the game. So it is with Dave Pallone, former Major League umpire who has officiated some of the greatest moments in baseball history, and he's worked some of the great events in Major League Baseball as well. We'd like to welcome him as a guest. And Dave, I wanted to start, as you know, our beat is the stadium's beat, and I wondered if we could kind of hop inside your head a little bit and view things through your eyes for an umpire what are the qualities that make for a good baseball stadium in which to work? 
Well, Bill, uh, first, thank you for having me on your show. And, uh, you know, for me, when I was umpiring in the, you know, late 70s and the 80s, the stadiums were huge stadiums, like, you know, the old Philadelphia Veterans Stadium and mm -hmm. the St. Louis Cardinal Stadiums. And those stadiums were really tough because they were so big. Nowadays, uh, you know, late 90s, you know, the Colorado Rockies, uh, I visited to that their stadium. Mm -hmm. You know, they have a tremendous stadium. Stadium because it's a smaller stadium like, for instance, Wrigley Field. Wrigley Field is a great stadium to umpire in. I love the closeness of the fans. But back when uh, Major League Baseball decided that the huge stadiums were the thing to get as many people in the stadium as you can, uh, that's where you had the issues of the fans were too far away. And so for an umpire's part of you, when you look at the stadium and it's so big, it's hard to see a lot of the things that you really need to see when you're umpiring the game. Dave, today baseball is so much a sport that is played at night. How much of a factor was lighting in terms of officiating a baseball game? I umpired the very first night game at Wrigley Field back in August of 88. Oh, so, uh, so it was kind of a, a, you could see a whole different aspect of the game. Because remember, all the other stadiums had lights and Wrigley was having their first time ever. So you could actually see the difference because we'd have a night game and then an afternoon game the next day. It was kind of a big issue for the Cubs and Wrigley Field to have their lights put in. You mentioned that you worked only one game in Fenway Park in your career, and the reason for that, of course, was that you were a National League umpire. There was a time when the umpiring crews were separate. Do you prefer today's format where the, the full umpire crews are mixed, the leagues are mixed? Uh, would you have liked to uh, officiate in that type of environment? Oh, absolutely. I actually spoke to um, one of the major league umpires now, Dale Scott, in going through all what they do now. And I just think it's so much better. It cuts down on your travel. If you were working at, say, for me, it's now called City Park. It used to be Shea Stadium. But if you were working at City Park, you could go over to, uh, to Yankee Stadium and then right down the pike to Boston. You know, you wouldn't have to go from Shea Stadium maybe all the way out to the West Coast coast to Dodger Stadium. And so uh, I just think Major League Baseball made a tremendous change when they made all the umpires as Major League umpires instead of separate American and National League. And then uh, making umpires have schedules that are closer so that they don't have to travel so many miles. It's not only cost effective for Major League Baseball, but it's also body saving for the umpires, if you know what I mean. You know, during the years when you served as an umpire, there were a number of artificial turf fields, not just in the dome stadiums where you'd see them automatically like the Astrodome say. Talk about that and how that affected your job as an umpire. I was actually speaking about the, about that the other day. Uh, you go to St. Louis where, you know, it's hot in the summer, hot and humid in the summertime, and they had artificial turf. And you could truly fry an egg uh, on the field. Even as a young umpire, uh, I would I would get so dizzy that they would have to uh, give me an ammonia uh, towel to put over my face so I could get revived. You could actually, without question, lose five to ten pounds if you work behind home plate with all the gear that you have to wear. Uh, on a Sunday afternoon in St. Louis, plus the fact that it's a real, it was really tough 
on your knees and your legs when you're standing out in the outfield or standing on uh, first base, second base, third base, because that artificial turf wasn't that cushioned. You have to mitigate an awful lot of disputes in baseball between players and coaches, and your word is final, obviously. So, you know, I've talked with some college officials about it, and uh, they used to try to give hints to players if they saw something going on. They'd try to back them off a little bit. They'd give them a strong hint to try to let them know what was coming if they kept up the behavior. I would assume you probably used a similar uh, approach (laughs) behind the plate. It was always a matter of who you are working with. Your your goal truly is whether there are people out there that believe it's not true, but your goal is to let everyone stay in the game. You don't have any thought about wanting to go to the stadium and throw someone out of the game. Uh, so you try to do your best to listen to their complaints, try to be as honest as you can with the player, depending on who that player is, so that they will get the message. For instance, if you have a player that you know respects you, and you respect him as a player and is, you know, has a type of um, uh, demeanor that he's, you know, he's okay if you tell him, hey, hey, Joe, I, I, I missed the pitch. Nothing I can do about it. I missed the pitch. Now, he knows that you're not going to make it up. But at least he knows, well, I don't have to swing at that pitch anymore because Dave made a mistake. Mm-hmm. And usually they'll back off and they say, okay, I'm okay with that. But there are times where you have to be really careful because there are players who will say, okay, you made a mistake, either you know, change it or make it up. And you can't do that as an umpire. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. So you have to pick and choose the people that you can say that to. But most of the time, if you're honest with the players, they usually back off. And that's what I used to try to do. It was Dave Pallone who was the home plate umpire when Pete Rose tied Ty Cobb for the most hits. It was Dave Pallone who was there when Nolan Ryan's 4,000th strikeout took place. Can you give us your memories of these two unique events? Well, uh, you know, it was Pete, really interesting with Pete because uh, I always have felt that uh, Pete Rose you know, as we've had our differences in the past, but I've always believed him to be a Hall of Fame candidate and should have been in the Hall of Fame. That particular night was interesting for me because I knew I was part of history. What people don't realize is, you know, when you're the home plate umpire, you get those lineup cards and uh, you keep them. Unless the Hall of Fame comes to you and asks for them, you know, you get to keep those. And so Hmm. that's been in my archives forever. So it was kind of a, it was a unique situation for me to be in. But when you talk about uh, Nolan and Nolan Ryan's 4,000th strikeout, that to me was pretty close to the top of my career, pinnacle moment of my career. I've had a few others. It was neat because not only did I get the opportunity to call uh, the strikeout, but after the game, Nolan had sent over one of the baseballs that he he got strikeout number 4003 and he sent it to me as a gift and signed it. You know, to be a part of something like that in Major League Baseball that you know uh, that no one else is going to do. No one's going to break Pete's record. 
And mm-hmm. no one is ever going to get more than 5,000 strikeouts. It was what Nolan has. And you're a part of Major League Baseball history. And that's what I love about those two moments in my career. Dave, a real pleasure. Have fun in the mountains. And uh, thanks so much for the visit. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. Good luck with everything. Thank you. Real pleasure. Dave Pallone, Major League umpire and a great one. Shop and in steps Mark Madoran standing by, bat in hand, president and creator of the Stadiums USA website. And we want to remind you, everybody, that Stadiums USA is the nation's preeminent source for stadium information. You want to check it out? You'll learn for yourself at stadiumsusa.com. Mark, I just took a look just a few minutes ago before we began our conversation at the first generation of pictures coming from the new U.S. Bank Stadium, home of the Minnesota Vikings. And I have to tell you, it looks fantastic. You've taken a look at some of those pictures. Give us a description of what you are seeing here. Well, I agree with you, Bill. It looks fabulous. I can't wait to get up there and see a game. It's going to be a completely different atmosphere. The architects want it to look like a massive glacier from the outside. And when you look at the aerial shots, it really does have that kind of look. It's great. Mm-hmm. The stadium is immense in size. It's twice the footprint of the old Metrodome. And you remember, that wasn't any small uh, facility. Right. The design incorporates a huge see-through plastic roof, which makes it very light and bright, all that natural light coming into the venue. It kind of feels like an outdoor stadium, but with this fixed roof over the top. There are six club levels here, each with their own flavor. Uh, One of them, the Delta 360 Club, is actually at field level, and they can see out from when the players are coming out of the locker room. Mm. It looks fabulous. Behind the scenes, modern, state-of-the-art locker rooms, high-tech display boards for coaches, special recuperation facilities for those players that are hurt, and antimicrobial lockers. It's a truly unique building. It's one I'm sure we're going to enjoy seeing on TV as as soon as they start playing games there. Uh, First game, regular season, you know who it's got to be. The Green Bay Packers and the Vikings. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. You know, they made a basic decision on this stadium that I think will turn out to be very positive. They did not go for a retractable roof. And because they didn't, Mark, they had a lot more money to put into what they've done inside. And I guess it really shows, does it not? It sure does. And I'm not against retractable roofs. They're they're a unique thing that um, each stadium has to decide if they want it. But um, the ones that open up, we talked before the show started about the ones we really like and how they work. And that's great. But here, you won't need a retractable roof here. It is really bright. It really captures the essence of the city outdoors. But you're indoors and enjoying it uh, every bit as much when it rains or snows. So We also have an idea what the concession prices are starting to shape up like, Mark. What's the story there? Well, the media got their first look at the concessions at the stadium this week. And there are a great many different locations here. And there's clubs on most levels. 
But concession prices aren't too bad. They're no bargain either, but they're not bad. The 300 level, there's a, a concession stand. Hot dog is six bucks. Hamburgers nine dollars, and a soft drink is five fifty. And that's pretty much stadium kind of prices. Mm-hmm. That's not outrageous. Uh, pretty good for fans. There are some specialty food items there too. Uh, there's a hamburger loaded with tater tots for twenty dollars and fifty cents. <laughs> oh, gee. That's in the six twelve burger kitchen. If you like a twenty five hundred calorie burger, <laughs> uh, there's a smoky chicken nacho dish for nine dollars. So hmm. you can get some specialty stuff as well as your your regular stadium fare as well. Mark, there are a number of stadiums that have renovations going. One we haven't talked as much about is Raymond James Stadium in Tampa. There's been a lot of work going on there. It won't constitute a new stadium, but it is awfully nice. Tell us what the story is there. The Buccaneers have upgraded the stadium and added some new high-tech features for fans to enjoy. One of the biggest changes is called the Preview Center. It's kind of like what's going on in Milwaukee. The center gives fans an opportunity to see all the changes that are being made in virtual reality Mm. with the device on your head. And you can kind of spin around 360 degrees and you can see pictures and video as well. The stadium's undergone the first stage of a $140 million renovation. The new state-of-the-art HD video boards have been installed in each end zone. So that's new. The fans are going to enjoy that. Hmm. There's also four corner video displays, one at each corner of the stadium that's new. There are upgrades to the sound system as well. As a matter of fact, I think they put a whole new sound system in. Another improvement is called the Hall of Fame Club. It's a premium seating area with great location where you can see the field very well. And when you become a member, it includes uh, food and drink as well. So the Hall of Fame members get access to every Raymond James stadium event. So it's kind of a cool thing to be a member of that. Speaking of Tampa, St. Pete, of course, we do have the baseball stadium issue there with the Rays. They are shopping for a new possible location. Pinellas County has identified several sites for where a new stadium actually could be. And um, what's the story on it? Well, in an effort to keep the Tampa Bay Rays in Pinellas County, officials there have created a list of 10 possible sites for a new stadium. If the Rays move, they could possibly move across the bay back to Hillsborough County. Mm -hmm. There are already a list of sites for Hillsborough County, but none of those locations really are a perfect fit for a stadium. Pinellas County sites are in nearby Clearwater, Oldsmar, Pinellas Park, St. Pete, and some unincorporated areas. Mm -hmm. The largest site under consideration is the Derby Lane Dog Track, which is 135 acres. The official report rates each site by business employees, residents, income levels, et cetera, et cetera. And each site rated uh, could possibly meet the requirements of the race. So there's this competition between the two counties as to where the the ballpark is going, and I personally would like to see Hillsborough County, That, but that's just because it's a little easier to get to than the uh, sites in Pinellas. Yeah. Can you believe this, Mark? Next week, NFL training camps open, and from a fan's perspective, this is a real opportunity to get up close with the players. You've done this. You know the deal. Where are some of the teams actually working out this year? Well, Bill, it's time to talk NFL training camps, which <laughs> opens next week. For all the teams, as a fan, there is no better value in sports than the NFL training camps. Mm -hmm. It's the best. Most camps are free of charge. They don't charge you a thing to walk in. And 
they rarely charge you for parking. A few of the places charge a little bit to park. But where else can you go see your favorite team? You're up close, much closer than you'd be in any of the stadiums we're going to talk about. You literally are almost rubbing shoulders with the players as they run on and off the field. Mm -hmm. I've been to the Bears training camp in Bourbonnet. It's terrific. I love going there. Some of the other sites, the Dallas Cowboys go far from home. They train in Oxnard, California. The New Orleans Saints train in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. That's a pretty good distance from home. Mm -hmm. uh, Minnesota Vikings in Mankato, Minnesota. Uh, Carolina Panthers in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And those are the ones that are the furthest from home. But some of the teams actually stay right in their regular training facilities. For example, San Diego, Jacksonville, mm -hmm. Tampa. Uh, New England, Cleveland, Denver, those people all just train right at the regular facility. And normally they'll let you get in for free and take a look at the practices and workouts. So it's a great thing for a sports fan to do. And I plan on going to see the Bears again this year. And Mark, each week we take a look back on some of the significant dates in stadium and baseball history. So let's roll up our sleeves and go to work on that. What do you have this week? Well, this week in 1858, I missed this game a little before my time. <laughs> the first baseball game in which a fans were charged admission. It was basically an all-star game made up of members of the various Brooklyn baseball clubs and the New York baseball clubs, mm -hmm. but it was significant as it showed the public's willingness to pay to watch baseball. In 1994, the Mariners played a, quote, home game at Fenway Park in Boston against the Red Sox. At the time, the Kingdome was undergoing repairs to its acoustical ceiling. Remember, they had the damage and they, they couldn't play at home, so they played their home game at Fenway. Also, in 1994, the longest recorded rain delay in baseball history as the fans at New York Shea Stadium waited three hours and 39 minutes for the start of the Giants-Mets game. Oh. San Francisco would eventually win that game. So that's just a few items from this date in stadium history. Well, very good. Pack all of your stuff to get out to the NFL camps, Mark, and get ready and have a good weekend. Enjoy the summer, Bill. Thank you, Mark. You too. Mark Medoran, We Talk Shop.